Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Oh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Witness Docs from Stitcher. This is an historic time. This is going to be a multi-year fight. Why is it taking so long to get a screening test? It is not a hoax, it is real. Something that we have never experienced before. Wash hands, wash hands, wash hands. I mean, you're the scientist, you're gonna have to tell me. (laughs) Greetings, greetings, greetings. Welcome to Science Rules, Coronavirus Edition. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the series that brings you the latest analysis and the science of this pandemic to keep you informed, prepared, and calm. We are all in this together, my friends, now more than ever. We're nearing 1.8 million total cases of COVID-19 in the U.S., and will likely hit 2 million sometime this month. But even that massive number is far short of the more than 200 million people scientists estimate will have to develop resistance to this virus in order to achieve this thing we call herd immunity. And that's in the U.S. alone. Along with protesting peacefully and setting fires violently last weekend, thousands and thousands of people were out yelling at each other, often without masks, and seemed they were always standing within arm's reach of one another, none of this six-feet business. Which brings us to a question we haven't talked about much on this show. What chances are we willing to take? How much are we willing to risk our own health, and more importantly, the health of others, in order to get to this mythic herd immunity and get past this pandemic? That's the kind of tough question that Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel has been dealing with for years, including in his work as a former health policy advisor to the Obama White House, He is an oncologist, a bioethicist at the University of Pennsylvania, and co-host of the podcast, Making the Call, which takes on the ethical quandaries of this pandemic. Dr. Emanuel, welcome to Science Rules. Welcome. May I call you Zeke? Everyone else does. Nice to be here, Bill. (laughs) Thank you for taking the time. We are already at more than 100,000 deaths in the U.S., and we all want to know how bad is it going to get? Well, I think, you know, we've had 100,000 deaths in roughly uh, three months. Uh, So by the end of the year, barring some major change, uh, I think we're probably heading into the range of 200,000. Those are people that wouldn't have died otherwise, right? These are... Well, some of them might have died, but you look at what, you know, we call excess deaths, the deaths above the baseline, it does appear that uh, there are... Uh, a number of excess deaths. I mean, we were actually this morning, we're just looking at the number of excess deaths from pneumonia and influenza. And that 
gives you an indication of extra COVID deaths because a lot of those people die uh, from influenza-like syndromes, fever, right, difficulty breathing. So they uh, may be COVID cases misclassified oh, as yes. influenza. Yeah. And so you look at what do you expect this year, which hasn't been a particularly bad year, certainly compared to 2018. You and, mean as far as the flu goes? Yes. And then you look at the how much higher the death rate is. It's at least 20,000 maybe. So in addition to the confirmed COVID deaths, there are these other influenza deaths. Now, what about this last weekend? I mean, of course... The racism, but now everybody out yelling at each other. It's just got to be worse. Do you have uh, any well, estimates based on last weekend? <laughs> uh, no, but I, I would say um, we have learned a couple of really important things about the transmission of COVID. Uh, the first important thing we've learned is that it's much more transmissible indoors than outdoors. Why is that? Stagnant air? Exactly. You're rebreathing air from the same room uh, with someone and the number of particles you pick up by the other person, if they're positive, exhaling uh, is, you know, you, you just breathe the same thing over. But we also own the second thing that you get a lot more particles uh, distributed if you sneeze, cough, sing and yell. You bring up air from the bottom of your lung with a lot of virus particles. You shoot them out uh, pretty wide. Now, in the outdoors, there's some dilution effect, but it's not complete. We know that. Um, and that, you know, if, if you get your hands on it and then you touch someone else. And so I think your supposition is exactly right, which is standing right next to each other, not wearing masks, screaming and shouting and chanting, uh, these are not good for transmission and probably pretty bad for transmission. So based on last weekend, do you think you're going to see an even bigger spike than you might have otherwise expected? Yes, I think, uh, you know, if you rewind two weeks ago, I think a lot of people were expecting during the summer because people are moving outdoors, the temperature's getting a little higher, some combination of uh, more people are wearing face masks, more people are social distancing and adhering to this. I think people were looking at a sort of nice way to drop down the transmission rate over the summer and maybe brace ourselves for the fall, uh, October, November, when we go back indoors and, and the unfortunate uh, likely transmission uh, and potential second wave is going to happen. Now you have this situation and you've got to worry that combined with a lot of reopening of things. So eating in restaurants, going into stores, uh, you got to think that there's going to be a uptick. Yeah, it's got to be. So uh, this leads us to the question, uh, what kind of risks are we willing to take? One thing, many of the people protesting were young people. Does that affect the way you estimate how many people are going to die from this thing from last weekend? So it definitely is the case that uh, younger people either are asymptomatic or have mild symptoms in general. And it's important to put the caveat in general, and that if you're older, you're much more uh, vulnerable to severe symptoms and uh, maybe even catching uh, COVID-19. We don't know for sure about the catching part. We do know that if you're older, you're more likely to have severe symptoms and, and die from it. Uh, on the other hand, I would say the in general part is very important. So there are always these anecdotes, and unfortunately, we don't have great uh, data, 
you know, young, 35-year-old, otherwise healthy, skinny, so doesn't have any of the risk factors, gets COVID and has what appears to be some serious persistent respiratory problems. Never intubated, but persistent respiratory problems. Intubated, put it, getting, get a tube down your throat so you keep breathing. Right. So in general, people don't have a severe, but if you infect tens of thousands of people, there will be a number of them who are, are going to be outliers. And sure. in, in this case, outliers in a negative way uh, by having serious illness. And maybe, again, we don't know because we don't have long-term follow-up, maybe long-term uh, respiratory yeah. and lung damage. For years and years. Yeah. So yeah. is have you all, you're a bioethicist, about the ethics yeah. of life. Have you all given thought to who's going to live and who's going to die? Here we are. We have, um, we had this, we had this March, uh, 10 days later, a whole bunch of people come back sick. So the emergency room in pick a place, Washington, DC is overwhelmed. Is there, are you all ready? Are we as a society ready to make choices? Can you make recommendations to us voters and taxpayers? Oh, she's over 65 with diabetes. Let's not work that hard on her. He's under 30 with no existing conditions. Let's help him. This person um, has a high body mass index, too high. We're going to let that person probably die. Have you guys given that a bunch of thought? Yes, and I would say what you uh, characterize is probably not where we've come out. Various different groups, uh, including my own uh, group at University of Pennsylvania, this is a topic I've been working on uh, literally since 2006, uh, how you allocate uh, absolutely scarce medical resources in a pandemic or when you just don't have enough in, to go around to everyone who's got a medical need. I began working on it because of a report from HHS on what to do in a pandemic influenza, and they had, we should allocate vaccine and medical intervention. This is in 2006 you started on this. Yes, because Michael Levitt, who was then secretary of HHS, right after SARS hit, said, wow, we've got to be prepared for a potential pandemic. And he looked and there wasn't really good advice. And so he asked the government uh, bureaucrats to begin getting good advice. So you all did that. Wasn't especially ready to go this year, was it? Well, that's not true. There were there were several reports, um, unfortunately, um, and I think again, this is <laughs> each administration comes in recognizes it's important, but then they, uh, you know, get overwhelmed by the the urgent rather than the important. And sorry, are you getting an alert, a curfew alert? Uh, that's right, exactly. You got it. So here in real time, what is what does the alert say? You're sitting in Washington D.C. at four thirty in the afternoon. It was the mayor. There was a lockdown. So that's what that was about. So during our pod, during this recording, you there got will a message. Be a, a, yeah, there will be a seven o'clock uh, curfew. That's pretty early curfew, everyone. Yeah. So you were saying after this dramatic intervention from the mayor of Washington, D.C. by mobile <laughs> alert, you were talking about the ethics of what to do during a pandemic yeah. and the planning that started back in 2006. Yeah. And so... Uh, I think there's been a, you know, to some degree, a consensus uh, built up uh, that, you know, top priority are healthcare workers, not because they're kind of special people in any moral sense, but they can help save other people. And so they get top priority if there's a scarce resources. Uh, and then the priority is to save the most life years, not lives, individual lives, but 
length of lives. We want people to live through what we have called the complete life, be able to be children, young adults, uh, middle age, raise a family. To uh, ha- have a good run, as my relatives would say. Yeah, exactly. And uh, play out the whole nine innings of life. Uh, and that's, uh, I think, a very uh, strongly, uh, been the view. It's not the number of lives you save. That actually is not the relevant criteria, but having people who can live through a complete life. Um, and I think that's become, uh, that's a view we articulated early on and re-emphasized in 2009. And I think it's been, uh, and then we re-emphasized it just this March. And I think it's been the, the dominant view. Zeke, Dr. Emanuel, it does sound a little bit like, well, if somebody's of a certain age with certain body mass index, with certain pre-existing conditions, for example, diabetes, uh, we're not going to work that hard to save you. No, it's not that we're not going to work that hard to save you. It's a different circumstance, good, good. Bill. Explain, the, explain. The, the circumstance is you got one respirator and two patients who there need you it. Go. Yeah. Or you have one ICU bed or, you know, if a vaccine comes, we have one vaccine uh, who do we choose? That's the kind of circumstance. It's not that I've got the patient, I've got a bed in the ICU, I've got a respirator, and we're not going to work that hard to save you because you happen to be in a high-risk category. It's when you have to make choices. It's when you're forced by nature to make choices. And that's a very different circumstance and uh, than the one you were suggesting. So uh, along this line, do we have enough resources right now for when this next bounce or second wave shows up? Well, it depends how extreme the second wave is. I think we also have learned a lot uh, just in three months about how to manage uh, these patients, the importance of having anticoagulation, probably not of using respirators. It looks like respirators are counterproductive, flooding them with oxygen, but not forcing the air in the lungs probably is more important uh, to do. Um, So I think we've learned uh, uh, several things about managing the problem, not everything, because we still don't have real cures. I mean, remdesivir has got an emergency use authorization. But, you know, I think most people conclude modest at best. So going forward, the United States is going to have to make some changes. How do you feel about the efficacy for this comes up all the time on this podcast? How do you feel about the efficacy of masks? Okay. (laughs) I've just reviewed this literature. So the literature is not overwhelmingly positive in uh, randomized controlled trials. In fact, there's one randomized controlled trial that everyone points to, and that's Australia, 2009, using masks, small study uh, to prevent influenza spread probably helpful. You know, it's a hard thing, a hard natural experiment to do using masks and not using masks. Here's my view of it. What's the downside of using masks? All right. Nothing. Basically, they're cheap, if not free. They probably prevent you from, especially if you cough or sneeze, spreading widely, prevents you from inhaling some part. Are they as good as N95 masks? No. Do they reduce your risk? Yes. If you're walking outside, something unexpected might happen. Someone might sneeze in your face. You might want to go into a store and you might be caught with other people. You just don't know. So we should get into the habit of wearing those masks 
certainly during this period, to reduce the spread. They are not sufficient alone. They come in a complex of public health interventions, frequent hand washing, uh, physical distancing of six feet to the best uh, of your ability. But we need to make a habit of wearing masks. We need to make that normal. Uh, And especially if you're going to end up in crowded situations like subways or airplanes or Amtrak trains. We'll be back right after this. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. What about herd immunity? What are the chances that we'll get there in a disciplined fashion rather than what I'm thinking of as a catastrophic fashion? Well, the only disciplined fashion that is likely to get us to herd immunity will be a vaccine. Most places, New York has the most, if you randomly select people, seems to have around 15 to 20% people infected. Almost every other place, including places like Stockholm or Chicago other cities uh, are below 10%. Uh, but we need to get to it, three quarters, right? 70. You, you need to get 60 to 70, uh, 80%. And ex- we don't know exactly for sure because we're not there. Um, so we're uh, a long way away. And we've already had 100,000 deaths on our way to call it 10% at best. Uh, you don't want to do it the natural way. Uh, we need a vaccine much faster than uh, allowing another few hundred thousand people to die on our way to getting herd immunity. So, wow. So speaking of vaccines, let's say one comes into existence a year from now, or even less than a year from now. You all have given thought as to who gets it first? (laughs) Yes. So Again, healthcare workers, first responders, people who interact a lot and have the opportunity to spread a lot, they probably need the vaccine first. Grocery clerks, policemen, firemen, uh, those are the people who really need it if you're going to uh, prevent uh, spread. If you're going to reopen primary and secondary schools, you're probably going to have to vaccinate teachers who are at high risk because they're intersecting with a lot of students and are older and run the age range with 
uh, real comorbidity. So uh, school teachers and staff are the kind of people that you would want to do it. Nursing homes, where a lot of the mortality happens, uh, that's another place. Nursing home workers. Uh, so those are the those are your first run. Now, the big problem in the United States is uh, we're going to have a lot of vaccine, or we're going to have a pot of vaccine. But a lot of the ways we traditionally give vaccine are not going to be available to us, right? CVS stores. I know that at my university, at the University of Pennsylvania, lots of people just line up and bam, 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 they go through. Why won't we be able to do that? Well, you don't want to have people lining up. uh, Well, I'll tell you, I line up all the time, six feet from people, two meters from people at the grocery store, the hardware store. But not hundreds of people in that line going through. uh, I mean, you could do it and you probably... But it's not going to be the easy. I mean, far easier, in my opinion, is we need to cha- train hundreds of thousands of contact tracers. Uh, now, if we also train them to give injections and assign them, you've got the following three blocks, every house here, you go back over and over again until you get everyone in every house. That we're going to bring the vaccine to you, not you to the vaccine. I think it's going to be, would be a very efficient way of getting people immunized here. Now, in an unrelated but related note, when do you think a vaccine would be, become available? The trials that are being anticipated now, the big randomized safety and effectiveness trials, the NIH is planning to start some on July 6th. Uh, 20,000 people to get a vaccine and 10,000 people to get a placebo, probably some other vaccine that's not uh, related to COVID-19. Meningococcus is one that people talk about. Then you have to wait for those people to be exposed to the virus um, and then see how many get actual disease and how many don't. You're also going to be monitoring them do they raise antibodies? Do they get a fever? Does something go wrong? Yeah. And what, si- what side effects What side effects do they have? Correct. And then you have to test them. Now, you know, in, in the normal world, those tests typically take years. Now, we may have hot spots where we can really test this relatively quickly. But I think the original promise of it's probably, if you, wait, if you do it the proper way, that's probably into the spring because you're going to have to go over the winter when you have a lot of outbreak. I will tell you that one of the things I'm worried about is that we won't wait for that proper trial to be completed. We'll rush ahead and we'll say, listen, we're not seeing side effects in a few months. Uh, We're seeing antibodies go up, even though we don't know whether the antibodies are protective. Let's get this vaccine out under an emergency youth authorization in EUA that doesn't say it's effective. That just says it might work. There's a reasonable chance it'll work. That is a very dangerous situation, in my opinion, because we won't know what's effective, and yet we'll be immunizing people, and those people will, well, all right, I've got the vaccine. I'm fine. Um, and that, I think- You think behavior is the big problem with that? I think behavior is a big problem with everything in uh, related to infectious diseases, and we have to get people to adhere uh, and stick to the good behavior uh, until we're sure. And the problem with an emergency use authorization is that uh, it communicates to people, we've got it covered. And in fact, we won't have it covered, 
or we won't know if they'll have it covered. And that, I think, is a very dangerous situation. Where you th- you think you're okay, but you're not. And by you, I mean... Exactly. Society. Right. So uh, along this line, you know, uh, your brother <laughs> says, never let a good crisis go to waste. Right. Uh, do you see a positive outcome from all this trouble? I think you have to uh, look at it in two or three ways. The first is... We clearly have seen deficiencies in our healthcare system, and it does suggest that we need to fix big parts of the system. The CDC and the public health response clearly need attention and rework. We need to change our health insurance system. I think one of the things that's come out of this is people are feeling very insecure, and we're going to have to fix that and make people feel more secure. They have health insurance, and they're not going to pay thousands and tens of thousands of dollars if they get sick. Second, unemployment is obviously not working in this situation. Lots of people who have been laid off aren't being covered by our unemployment insurance. We've made a small change in the CARES Act by extending it to gig workers and contractors and self-employed people, but that's not permanent. So we're going to have to make that permanent. Uh, So I think there's a number of changes to our safety net that probably are going to come out of this uh, with the next election. And I think that could be a big positive if we get those changes. So a better public health system, universal health insurance, and a better safety net, that might be the uh, silver lining to this horrid disease and several hundred thousand people unfortunately dying. So if you were going to reopen for the benefit of employees and employers and the economy, what would you do? How would you go about reopening things? The first thing you have to do is you have to knock down the R naught. That's the rate of transmission to roughly 0.4. And we're not there in most places. Uh, A number less than one. In fact, less than a half. Much less than one, because then you can really identify small outbreaks and contact trace them and quash them. Uh, And that, I think, is going to be the key. And we haven't We haven't had the discipline in this country, and I I think it's a real problem because we haven't had a consistent lockdown across the country that drives the uh, transmission down. You've seen it in New Jersey and New York where they've really been able to, because of the severe upswing, they've really been able to drive it down and they've stuck to the distancing. And that's going to be the key. You have to drive it down sufficiently low that all you have is a few outbreaks that you really suppress. So you would want to lock everything down right now until we get this kind of pattern we've seen in these two big states back east? I would have liked to have locked it down in mid-March much more severely and nationally and not, you know. You're not the first person on this podcast to say this, Zeke, I got to tell you. Uh, I'm sure. Yeah. It shouldn't have been just San Francisco or just, uh, you know, Detroit or just Chicago. We needed it nationally and then ease up only when we're sure that the transmission rate is down to, you know, very low 0.4. And we've got a good testing regime in place, which we still don't. And we've got good contact tracing so that we can really uh, jump on any case. And we have the ability to monitor people, including people who get, have a lot of contact with others. We're, we're not in that position. That's the place you want to be. If, in fact, we get a reprieve this summer, Bill, The key thing to do this summer is to make sure we have enough testing in place and we've trained hundreds of thousands, two or 300,000 contact tracers. I'm all for it, Zeke, but is there any evidence that we're going to get a reprieve this summer? 
the best evidence are maybe heat does something. I don't put too much stock in that, but we're going to be outside where transmission goes down. We've had a lot of people adopt social behaviors, at least in my neck of the woods of Washington, D.C., you do see people wearing masks much more consistently. Yeah, I'd say, last night I'm watching the TV and the I know, DC police people, the policemen and women are not wearing masks. If I may, as if I were younger, I would say, dude, like, dude, <laughs> dude, uh-huh. it's really troubling. You guys, you're in the midst of this. Let, it's not just setting an example. It's keeping yourself safe. I agree. So with hey, you. this is something I like to ask everybody. If you were, as I like to say, king of the forest, what would you do? Is there a thing or there a group of things that you do? So I think we need to have task force with clear authority and responsibility for getting fixing the testing regime and really getting both antibody testing at home, uh, not just the serology, but the antibody against COVID, against coronavirus. What do you mean by serology? The serum? Serology is after you've been infected to confirm whether you've been infected or not. We have a lot of those tests, but the FDA made it a wild west, so we don't. So most of them don't work. Well I know they one know. in two chance. Well, what the heck? Yeah, exactly. We start flipping coins. Yeah. What are you doing? Exactly. It's not a test. It's exactly. It's a flip of a coin, and then you need antibodies against the coronavirus so you can have a quick, rapid test like we do for pregnancy or malaria or strep throat, so that in the fall we can do rapid on-site testing for people going into classes, people going to, I I mean, going to school, people going into various activities. And we need hundreds of millions of those available. These are the kind of things you would put in place if you, you know, had authority. Similarly, you would put into place, we're going to stay locked down until we can be ready for this opening. And, and, you know, this administration was told lots of times, op-eds, on TV, and they just have not been able to do it. You know, this idea that the president over and over promised testing. We got it. Anyone's going to who wants a test will get a test. You know, here we are three months later and it's like nowhere close to a reality. It's a it's a terrible. What do you think the chances of things getting better by uh, January 20th, the inauguration day? Uh, I'm actually worried that, that it'll be worse then for uh, because you'll have the winter. Uh, so I do think by the start of school, it'll be fine. And then I'm worried about October, November, when you are going to be inside and begin transmitting again. And maybe we'll have relaxed our social distancing, wearing our masks and all that other stuff. Again, a lot of outdoor life is is probably good for reducing transmission. Wow. Thank you. Uh, I mean, not thank you for that, but thank you for taking the time. Our guest today has been Dr. Zeke Emanuel, the famous He is an oncologist and a bioethicist at the University of Pennsylvania. His podcast is called Making the Call. Listen to it, please, and turn it up loud. You can find it wherever you're listening to Science Rules Coronavirus Edition. If you'd like to join the conversation, and I hope you do, leave us a voicemail about your experience of this pandemic. The number is 201-472-0785. I'm Bill Nye, and my friends, this is a pandemic. It's worldwide. We are all in this together, and now more than ever, science rules. Now, if you like Science Rules Coronavirus Edition, and I hope you do, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps other people learn about the show, helps us develop what you want to listen to. So thank you. 
Science Rules Coronavirus Edition is a production of Witness Docs here at Stitcher. The show is produced by Harry Huggins and Corey S. Powell. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. Our engineer is Luz Fleming, who also mixed this episode. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. Special thanks to Casey Halford. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer here at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, now more than ever, science rules. Oh, one more thing. Wait, four more things. Contact tracing. And wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. Thank you. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.